Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. I'm joined today by Craig Mills, who's CEO at Visuality. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Hi there, Ian. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for joining us today. So, Craig, why don't you start off by giving us a bit of background to the work of Visuality? Visuality, we've been around for over a decade now. Largely speaking, we've responded to the need of large nonprofits, governments and academics in helping them share their information, share their data online. So we've had organizations that have wanted to tell the world where deforestation is happening, where illegal fishing is happening, tracing the movement of commodities around the world, the climate change emissions, all of these complex scientific data heavy processes. Our job really is to work with these organizations to bring it to life, put it online, make people understand it, get it into the hands of the people that can do something useful with it. Today we could talk a little bit about how you're seeing data used by companies and how that's changing, how the the trends that you're seeing. It strikes me that there are risks of uh, data overload for companies and data, of course, is useless unless it's presented in a usable way. What sort of approach do you think helps ensure that this is the case, that it is presented in a usable way? Visuality itself has gone through a transition from predominantly working with non-profits into a space where we're getting a lot of demand from companies that are making all sorts of commitments from zero deforestation to net neutral commitments. They are needing systems which will allow them to track, to monitor, to change their operations. And they see data and technology as being a good part of that. And largely, most of that knowledge has been built up in the organizations we've worked with. So now what we're facing is a bunch of companies at various stages in their transition to being sustainable, trying to figure out how to use that same data in their operations. And it's a tricky challenge, right? Not only is this new knowledge for them, not only is there massive volumes of data, especially coming from places like satellites, then what's happening is uh, they don't have necessarily today the expertise to handle it. So overload is a combination of lots of data, but also a lack of capacity in how to handle it. So that's why what one of the reasons why they're coming to us. What's interesting, though, is that I see in the conversations we're having with organizations, with companies, is really what the question is not so much as we want more and more data. It's how much can we have in order to move forward, in order to act. And that's something that depends on company or you know, what industry they're in or what expertise they have. And there's unfortunately no straight answer to it. So how then do you help companies make sense of data? And perhaps let's think about how the sense can be so that different functions within the company can collaborate effectively to push change. Because obviously different parts of a company are going to use the data points in different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's no different to financial data. The CEO may need monthly, quarterly reports on like high level indicators of what's happening with the finances compared to someone who's buying commodities that needs to know budgets and you know amount they're spending and those kinds of things. The same thing applies to sustainability data. For example, if you look at the food supply chain business, maybe you have a supply chain manager that's making choices maybe once a month on where they buy their beef from. At that point, they need a degree of granularity in the information which allows them to say, well, okay, if I buy it from here, I'll talk bluntly, but if I buy it from here, it's better than buying it from over here. And that's fine. If you aggregate that information on the purchasing choices up to the entire company, then it gives you the possibility to report on how you're doing as a whole company, which is then useful to the board, for example. So then it goes to the board and the board can make decisions at that level. Now, to enable any of those things to happen, it requires this underlying bunch of data, this database of information, which can then sit there as a foundation from which to pull insights from. Depending on type of job you have, maybe you're out in the field and you need something on a mobile phone. Maybe you're sitting in a, around a conference table and you need something on the internet. 
will depend on what tools and what products are made. And actually what's happening that a lot of these companies are going through this sort of journey of figuring out what it is they need in, at their operational levels in the company. But it all stems from this baseline of, of information, of data. How then that process you mentioned just now, the, the figuring out what you need bit, what's the kind of process that companies used to go through to figure that out? It, often they don't necessarily know what it is that they need to know. Yeah, that's right. I'm probably not the expert to talk about how companies go about determining indicators for their own business. What seems to happen at the moment, it seems to be very top down in a business, right? So they make these large commitments, which are often driven by, they're often driven by nonprofits, intergovernmental processes, which say, okay, all you businesses, you need to be net zero by 2030. So the adoption of those then filters down to say at the whole corporate level. And then at that point, there's a job to be done to see, well, first for awareness purposes within the company. Right, so all the pieces of the operation of the company understand what that means. And then you have to go into each part of the business. We've worked with, say, Mars. And let's say they need to change the recipes for one of their products. Then that requires a piece of knowledge, which may be to do with, again, beef or chicken and which one is more sustainable. So then you have to delve in to go, OK, is there any information? Is there any data available to help me make those choices? So it's very much a kind of iterative process. And then you go back up and you go, well, hang on a minute, we don't have any information to figure out whether we can do this or not. And actually, that seems to be the case that's happening a lot when it comes to nature indicators at the moment and biodiversity indicators. It seems to be that companies are going through this cycle of, okay, we'll think about this commitment, we'll see how it works in our operations, we'll look for data, we can't find it. So we'll go, we'll push that till later, because it's too complicated, or there's not enough information on it just yet. And so it's this kind of balance and sort of iterative play between these targets and the data and finding somewhere in the middle, which allows them to move forward, which is where they are. Now, what's, I guess, important is that year on year, they have to look at this again, because the space is moving so fast and the information that's becoming available is accelerating. There might be a different story in a year's time, two years time. So quality of data, this is something that a lot of people talk about, the importance of having good data, because if you don't have the right, don't have good data, you don't have the level of transparency that so many companies and organisations need. Is there a risk, though, of perfect data being the enemy of good data? So is there an absolute necessity for perfection, or can companies or should companies start working with data as soon as they have it available? So I would say that there's no such thing as perfect data, right? So there's, it doesn't really exist in almost the moment it's created. It's slowly getting outdated. You're constantly faced with it. So if anyone's waiting for perfect data, it's, it doesn't exist. So you might as well use what you got. What's important in terms of whether it's good enough is whether you can take action, which can be sort of reversed. I mean, take, for example, deforestation. So if you look at the deforestation data maybe five years ago, when Global Forest Watch, an initiative run out of the World Resources Institute, came about, they were publishing yearly data on deforestation. And that gave you enough of an overview of where maybe the bad actors might be or the problems might be occurring, which would allow a business to at least question suppliers and where they're getting the commodities from in certain parts of the world. And that was enough to assess risk and enough to kind of change your business, certainly enough to ask more questions. And then a few years back, they updated that information and it became every three days. And suddenly that gives you a very, very different picture. And actually it introduces new actors into the problem. If you can now see deforestation events happening or forest loss events happening three days ago, you can actually send someone there to look at it in real time. If it happened a year ago, that might not be possible. The forest might already be gone. It changes. And in that case, 
better data does allow you to act quicker. But the sort of lower temporal resolution data does still allow you to act. So providing you can still act, then it, the perfect isn't necessary. That's what we've seen time and time again. There is a problem, though, where sometimes it's not good or perfect, but non-existent. In the case of biodiversity data, many of the places which are most biodiverse in the world have almost no information at all, because most biodiversity data is collected in Europe and in North America. So if you go to places where it doesn't exist, then you have to use machines, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning techniques to allow you to guess well. And that's still better than nothing, probably. It's probably there's such a lack of information there that, that in, there's an investment needs to be made in those areas to improve the quality of the data, at least to teach the machines better. Let's come back to Global Forest Watch in a sec, but I want to ask you about machine learning. Is that one of the most striking changes that you've seen in terms of the way that companies engage with data? The fact they have to have computers to interpret it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Companies are becoming okay with modelled data, with data that's derived from machine learning from artificial intelligence. And it's seen as information which is useful to their business. And there's lots of products available out there which have been released by some major tech companies. At first, it allows the academic community to speed up how they do machine learning. So to do detections on everything from flooding to deforestation to even movement of people, right? Actually, what that really is, is machines looking at images and finding insights into those images and then giving that, well, actually, that information then needs to be presented in a form which companies can then do something with. And no doubt the acceleration of machines being able to find insights into messy information is really a big change that we see in all sorts of things. Some examples include actually the Stockholm Environment Institute work on an initiative called Trade. They're using machine learning to detect where commodities are going in the world. Like if you present that in a way which has legitimacy and credibility, then people make behavioral changes as a result of that. And there's another initiative called Global Fishing Watch, which uses machine learning techniques to determine whether boats in the sea, almost in real time, are fishing in places they shouldn't be fishing. Both of these things do way more than that, but just for, for simplicity's sake, this is what they do. And in those cases, that information is then again presented, and this is a really important part, and presented in a usable fashion, which is aggregated in a form which is like immediately, the insight is obvious, which then in the case of Global Fishing Watch helps determine where to put marine reserves. It helps determine where fishing vessels are allowed to go or not go. It helps determine whether there's slavery happening out at sea, whether you know, you know, human rights violations are going on. All of these things become possible with machine learning. I think a big part is just the ability to see the invisible and that then changes the way businesses are acting. That comes from machines being able to see insights into data. You mentioned Global Forest Watch. You've been working with them for some time. What's this project or your project with Global Forest Watch achieved? We've been working with WRI and a whole bunch of other partners for must be about seven years now on Global Forest Watch. One of the big sort of statements of Global Forest Watch and WRI is the idea that free and open information changes systems. So just coming back to the point about before Global Forest Watch, the, the state of forests was largely only seen in 10-year reports from FAO, right, or the occasional academic journal. And so there wasn't this constantly updated version of what's happening in terms of our forests. And that in itself had a huge number of knock-on effects prior to that. And just one purely about inspiration. No one would have thought you could even think about tracking deforestation along the supply chains prior to Global Forest Watch. The amount of effort we thought it would require 
was so big that it didn't even pop into our minds. And so then you see these other initiatives appearing, which allows you to do things with free and open data, which extends into corporates and into businesses. And so I think that's a major change. I mean, go and look at Global Forest Watch if you want to know the thousands and thousands of individual impacts that happen from stopping deforestation events, changing the way governments manage their forests, where investment goes, stopping companies from operating in places they shouldn't operate in. All those kinds of things are all a result of free, open, transparent information. Now, from quite like a technical level, it also, in the nonprofit stakeholder space, it also created a new blueprint of how you even build this type of technology in the world. Pretty much every, the ones that I mentioned already and many others beyond that follow a very similar route. They realize most of the knowledge is held in academics and in nonprofits, and most of the action gets taken away from those places. What you need is technology which unlocks all of that to bind these people together. In the case of Global Forest Watch, early days was, it was Google using their infrastructure and their kind of PR machine. It was WRI with the goals and setting the principles of the project and organizing the stakeholders. Visuality was involved in the building of the technology, you know, University of Maryland in the algorithms to detect deforestation. And then on top of that, hundreds, literally hundreds of partners all together using those data products to then do something and to change in that act. Now, that pattern of big tech company, academic, nonprofit, small implementing technology company, plus a plethora of stakeholders is one that's been replicated multiple times since then. And so that has led to some of these other initiatives knowing how to go forward. Also, it's demonstrated how much investment is actually necessary to do these things at an operational scale. And it's significantly more than people ever think. Probably not a surprise to a big technology company that spends billions on technology, but quite a surprise to NGOs that sometimes have got very tight budgets and you know very limited resources to do some of these type of projects. Well, what do you think are going to be the next big steps for how companies and organisations engage with data? And what challenges do you anticipate that your clients will bring to you? Just coming back to the investment side, it's worth thinking about where the money is going to create the knowledge necessary to make all these changes, right? And so traditionally, it's in at the academic world and it's in nonprofits. But recently, probably in the last maybe four or five years, more and more, thousands of percent more investment are going into small startups, private companies to create technology, create products into a market, which is like demanding change in their own organization. So they're looking for like solutions to that problem. So for example, in 2020, I think if I'm right, there was around $80 billion in, invested in climate tech startups. I was looking at this the other day. I looked at one of these lists of top 500 sustainability technology startups. And I picked the first 12 out of that list, which were related to digital science, technology and data. And I went through those and I thought to myself, in order for the sector to move forward quickly, there has to be this free and open sharing of data, of technology, of knowledge, of algorithms, of as much as you can. You go through these startups, which have had roughly, there's 12 startups, which have roughly $250 million of investment in them, all doing cool, innovative things, and ask the question, how many are making their knowledge, data, technology available to the rest of society? The answer is zero, um, none at all. And that's understandable, right? They're trying to capture value to sell it onto a market so their investors are happy and they make some money, whilst also doing good. But... Most of those organizations now are not going to exist in five years' time. You know, one in 10, one in 12, something like that is the normal odds of these things existing. So then you ask the question, 
okay, so 250 million of just of the first 13 that I picked are dollars are coming from there. One of those may succeed. What happens to all the knowledge and the data that comes out of that investment? And I'm pretty certain at the end of a startup cycle, which is closing shop, they don't spend another six months packaging up the data beautifully to share it with everyone else in the world, right? And that doesn't happen. So we have this challenge here, which there's this huge sway of investment into an area which is essentially closed, at least closed to start with, and closed for long enough that it's a problem. Then on the other hand, you've got you know, the big corporations which have been around a while, which are trying to change their operations and making big promises. And they're actually asking the communities to be more open. They're needing people to be open because they don't want to be footing the bill of all the innovation that is necessary to, to change, you know, the whole food supply chain sector. So it's in their interest, actually, to be as open as possible because this is a systemic problem here. You know, this isn't a quicker way to hail a taxi or to order food to your home. This is the sixth extinction. <laughs> this is a sort of a different level. So I see that as a big challenge. And I, I would hope that maybe at the investor level or at the large governmental level, you would start to see some assurances that enough of this information is made freely available. I mean, you could even have a nonprofit which is funded to unlock startup data or something. So while we're using this successful innovative model to create products which help change the world, equally that they're slowing themselves down because of the system in which they're in. And so when you ask me what the big challenges are going to be and what we'll anticipate the big challenges are going to be, if I was a big corporate food company right now, I'd be thinking, ah, do I want to be using black box products? I want this stuff to be out in the open and free. Whilst at the same time, the people that are producing it are coming from a space where they have to keep it close until they make some money. Therein lies the challenge, I think. There's obviously technological and data and a million other challenges as well. But systemically, I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. Do you think we're going to have a, then a transition to a greater degree of transparency? And if we are, how then do these companies make their money? So I would say, for example, for visuality, we've got investment from the European Commission to build a product called Langrithen, which is designed to help food companies figure out where the impact of their supply chains are, right? They can go, they can put in their indicators and, and they can say what's happening in the supply chain and we'll give them an estimate of their impact. It takes way more than that and you need lots of consultancy kind of services built on top of that, but essentially that's the thing. Now we've made a decision that all of the data, all of the technology, all of the everything is free and open. If we create knowledge which we think is going to benefit the whole system, then we make it open. That may not wash with someone who's just trying to sell a soft piece of software online but if you're looking at systemic change, and actually what's necessary at this point in time is that businesses get help in making transitions and they're willing to pay for that. So for visuality, we think that actually the offer of, of open and free software, which we then embed into these people's companies, that's a product that people will pay to have and make money from. And importantly, the extra step in this is to make sure that when people are paying for it, there is a cycle of funding back to the underlying baseline of knowledge which is going into all of these data products, many of which are built on public data. So there has to be some kind of feedback loop in terms, otherwise the bottom of it withers away. You ask me, how do they make money? Well, we think we can make money with that model. It just means you, maybe you don't do it in the same way as another Silicon Valley startup might do it. Well, it'd be fascinating to see how this develops. I think your really interesting point around the need for 
true transparency and, and openness of, of data. All these businesses that are, small, as you say, starting up and developing this knowledge, but it'll be lost if there's not a sense or a spirit of transparency and openness amongst everybody. So it'll be very interesting to see how that develops. But for now, uh, Craig Mills, CEO of Visuality, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian.